0: It's the summer of 1906, and 20-year-old Johannes Melhus is out working on his land when he suddenly notices a couple of weird objects sticking out of a big, shrub-covered mound just north of his farmhouse. His land lay along the broad banks of the Nomsen River in central Norway, and the sandy mound is tall enough, between two and three meters high, that it rose above the fertile fields around it. It would have been easy to see from the river itself. And that may help explain the nature of the objects he pulled out of the sandy soil. One was a small, intricate, house-shaped box about the size of four decks of cards stacked one on top of the other. The other was a whalebone plaque, a little smaller than a piece of A4 paper. What Johannes didn't realize as he dusted the sand off these strange objects was that he had just found evidence That the people who lived on his farm 1200 years ago were among Norway's very first Vikings. The mound, it turned out, was a kind of time capsule, and the time it came from was the Viking Age. I'm Nancy Baselchuk, and you're listening to 63 Degrees North, an original podcast from NTNU, the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. Today I'm going to tell you the story of Farmer Melhus's finds, and why archaeologists are so excited about them. It's a story of some of the earliest Viking raids on Ireland, pagan rituals, a woman priestess, and violent Catholic Irishman who were constantly warring with each other, but who at the same time were no match for the heathens who came from the north. And it's all centered around that little box, which is a... Complete reliquia shrine. That's Einaheen Pedersen, a PhD candidate at NTNU who's studying the box, the reliquary, for her doctoral research. The shrine is very small, It's
1: only 8 centimeters high and less than 12 centimeters long. Uh, But such shrines were of major importance in their Irish setting because they housed relics such as the physical remains of a saint or the personal effect of a saint or a venerated person. And it's a very rare find. It's possibly one of the most rare and special Christian objects that traveled across the North Sea.
0: If you want to know how Ina sees the world, you only have to look at her bookshelves, which are full of titles like The Sword in Early Medieval Northern Europe, The Story of the Drinking Horn, and, my personal favorite, The Past is a Foreign Country. Because while you and I might see that sandy mound on Farmer Melhus's land as a kind of a time capsule, for archaeologists like Ina and her colleagues, It's more like a time machine. It brings her to the foreign country that's the past. In this case, the past we're talking about happened more than 1,200 years ago. Archaeologists define the Viking Age as beginning with the first recorded Nordic raid on Lindisfarne, an abbey off the northeast coast of England on the Scottish border in 793. One description of this first raid says that monks were killed in the abbey thrown into the sea to drown, or carried away as slaves, along with church treasures. Given rise to a traditional prayer, O Ferori Nordmanoriam Libra nos domine. Free us from the fury of the Northmen, Lord. But back to our
1: sandy mound. The discoveries of 1906, they were not the first artifacts recovered from these specific mounds. A few years earlier, two young boys had found several items while playing, which included a spearhead, shares, a bronze mound, a large collection of beads, and several other objects.
0: So, how does an archaeologist make sense of all this? So shortly after the
1: discovery, the find was reported to the museum in Trondheim and the following year an excavation was carried out by the director Theodor Pettersen. We are able to retrieve some information because we have Pettersen's old reports about the condition of the objects and without that we would not have been able to tell the story as well as we... Know today if we hadn't that specific information.
0: Theodor Pedersen, the Trondheim archaeologist who investigated the burial mound in 1907, found a series of iron nails in the mound. They were placed in such a way that he was able to see that the mound had contained a nine meter long boat, buried parallel to the river. The boat itself had long since rotted away, of course, but the iron nails were a ghostly shadow and told the story. And that, combined with all the objects that had been found, allowed Pedersen to figure out that there were two people buried in the boat in the mound, a man and a woman. But the key thing here was that little reliquary.
2: This object is important because it was kept intact, and we can identify it very clearly as what it is, what it was.
0: Griffin Murray is a lecturer in the Department of Archaeology at the University College Cork in Ireland. He and Ina work together to figure out the deeper meaning of the reliquary. For
2: one thing... By looking at the object in terms of its decorative style, the roundels on it are in a kind of a Celtic style, kind of late Celtic style, and also because of some of its decorative techniques, uh, the enameling and the glasswork on the side of the reliquary, uh, we can date it to the 7th or 8th century and that combined with the evidence from the other objects that came out of the grave the woman's grave we know that this was an early grave we know that and so we can say with confidence that this is evidence for one of the earliest raids by the vikings in ireland
0: cool the dating of the shrine means that central norwegian vikings from the trondheim area they were badasses They were among the first Norwegians to voyage across the North Sea to raid England and
2: Ireland. I don't want to offend uh, Norwegian people in saying that, you know, all their forebears were these horrible plunderers. We must appreciate that at this time, medieval society, and it was very violent, it was a very violent society. Raiding was certainly not unique to the Vikings. We even think... Ireland's national saint, St. Patrick, he was taken, captured as a slave in a raid by the Irish on, on Britain.
0: And yet, the Vikings were different somehow. First of all, even though we know they went on raids, we don't know why. We do know that they were members of a very complex society. There were craftsmen, farmers, weavers metalsmiths, in addition to the raiders themselves. But as much as the Vikings have been studied, archaeologists and historians still really don't know why they went out on their raids. Maybe they needed something to trade so they could get access to scarce farmland. Remember, there was no money at the time, so they needed valuable trade goods. Another hypothesis is that they were reacting to the threat of Christianity, But in
2: Ireland, at least. What marks the Vikings out as being different, why are they recorded so, their attacks recorded so vividly in the annals, in these records, there are also accounts of the Vikings actually stealing reliquaries and breaking reliquaries in this period. So there's a account from the north of Ireland um, from a place called Bangor, which is in in County Down. And in the year uh, 824, uh, were told that the, the Vikings came to that site, they burnt down the church, and they shook the relics of Kovgal from his shrine. Especially with these early raids, they're, att- they're attacking from, they're raiding from the sea. So their attacks are, probably were pretty, pretty quick, hit and run things. The technology of their ships was far superior to anything that was in Ireland at, at, at the time. And so they could probably get in and out very quickly. And so I think that was one factor. The other factor, I think, was that when they attacked church sites, they didn't have any qualms or reservations about hitting the churches in particular and what the churches contained. Whereas I think when the Irish are attacking churches in this period, they're probably more attacking the church lands and the church properties as opposed to the actual churches themselves. I think the Irish, as Christians, would have respected the sanctity of the sacred centers of the churches themselves. And I suppose that's what sets the Vikings apart in this period as well, because they're pagans. Not only are they coming in and attacking the churches themselves, but as pagans, they would have been seen as as the other So what
0: about the reliquary itself? Why is it so interesting?
2: What's really important about our object here is it is undeniably an item of church metalwork because not only can we identify it, but it is not unique, but it is rare in being an object that wasn't actually broken up by the Vikings because what they tended to do with this Irish metalwork is they tended to chop it up. And... They reused parts of the ornaments as brooches or they used little mounts to decorate little lead weights that they used in in trading.
0: And the way the reliquary was made can also tell us about the church it came from.
2: This reliquary, we can say it's probably from not not a majorly wealthy church, okay? Because if you look at the reliquary itself, it's principally made of wood and it's got a metal facing on it. So there was no metal actually on the back, which would have been more the hidden part of it. But it's made to look expensive, and this is really interesting actually. So if you see, like, it's actually got a bronze plates at the front, but they're coated in tin. Okay, so this is a trick. So polished up tin looks like silver, and so the impression is to make it uh, to make it look like silver. And then the little discs on it, the little decorative discs. They were actually analyzed in the museum and found to be made of brass Now this is actually very unusual in a pre Viking context because the Irish mainly worked in bronze they didn't they didn't work in brass as the as the Vikings did, and so brass would be an unusual material, but again, I think the purpose there is polished up brass looks like gold, so the impression there is the silver and gold, but there was no silver and gold used, so it 's a trick so <laughs> We don't think this is a particularly wealthy church, but obviously it had its furnishings and of course they would have included things like a chalice and a paten for the host for the bread and a reliquary. Reliquaries would have been very important for any any church uh, to possess relics.
0: So, the reliquary was meant to seem more precious and valuable than it actually was, and yet It didn't get broken up by the Vikings when they returned with it to Norway. The
1: special treatment of the shrine may be seen in association with the special religious role, which may have been held by its female Norse owner. Because there are several indications that the woman may have held a central position in the pre-Norse cult practice, or that she has been a so-called ritual specialist. The most important uh, indication of this is perhaps w- one of the large brooches which she was buried with. It's massive. It's 24 centimeters long.
0: If it's 24 centimeters long, how could you wear that thing without it ripping your dress off?
1: Well, the large size indicates that these brooches were not intended for daily use, but rather only worn on very special occasions where the women themselves had central roles. So this was not a brooch used for every day. And several researchers have suggested that they were used as part of a priestess costume during pre-Christian rituals. Do we know what
0: kind of pagan practices this woman might have participated in?
1: So although the specific rites and use associated with the shrine are lost for us today, um, it is worth highlighting that uh, part of a leather-carrying strap was still attached to the hinge of the swine when it was discovered. So it is therefore possible that it was worn around the neck of the Mälhus woman as part of a ceremonial costume, together with the huge fibula and her staff and whalebone plaque.
0: Those straps were also used in Ireland. Griffin Murray explains.
2: The way this this reliquary was made It has carrying straps on it, so it would have been actually uh, carried around the neck and on the chest of, of of, of a person, of a religious person, and displayed, we assume, in religious processions and obviously put on display as well, perhaps, you know, on important feast days on the altar of the church itself. And I suppose the interesting thing about it as well is it has this tiny little key or little locking mechanism where you can, you can pull out this key and you can open it to reveal the contents inside. Alas, it no longer contains anything, which is very unfortunate, but that was obviously to display the relics that would have been kept inside to the devout.
0: Whatever was in the reliquary was long gone by the time it was discovered by farmer
2: Melhus. We don't know what was in there, but Ireland d- didn't have martyrs in the same way that Rome had okay they weren't killing Christians in Ireland and so it seems to have been a peaceful transition into Christianity so I suppose that's very important for understanding of the church in Ireland but unfortunately for the the Irish church this meant a lack of relics
0: What's surprising for me is how much information archaeologists are able to extract from some artifacts found buried in a mound of sand. What I never realized before is that archaeologists really rely on how different objects are placed in graves. The idea is that if someone went to the trouble of burying valuable objects, they probably weren't just tossed in as an afterthought. Here's where Theodore Pedersen did an amazing job when he excavated that burial mound in 1907.
1: We do try and piece together as much information as we can. And in this case, we are able to retrieve some information because we have Pedersen's old reports about the finds condition of the objects. And without that, we would not have been able to tell the story as well as we know today if we hadn't that specific information. He made sure that the finds information from the farmer was recorded and included, so that we knew which objects were found together, where the man and the woman was buried in the grave, so that, yeah, we know that the melusine probably belonged to the woman rather than the man. And that is significant in our setting, because um, Because without that information, you can't say too much about the find itself. If we just had found the shrine on its own, we wouldn't be able to understand much of its role in Norse society. Because in this case, the significance of the shrine must be seen in connection with its owner, its new owner. And it also means that we need to think differently about the use and meaning of the reliquary after it arrived in Norway. It was more than just a nice object or beauty, uh, more than just a nice present given
0: to the wife of a turned Norse warrior. The Melhus reliquary gives us a different picture of the role of Viking women in preparing for raids. And as a woman, I'm all for that. But how do we know that all of these grave goods came from raids? Maybe there was a softer, gentler kind of Viking out there too.
2: Since the the kind of 1970s, there's been a move away to, to interpret this material as coming from Viking raids. And other suggestions have been put forward, but nothing really as convincing as, you know, we have historic loads of historical accounts of these Viking raids where they're, Uh, breaking shrines, stealing shrines. And then we have this material turning up in in Norway, in in Norse graves. So really, there isn't an alternative interpretation. It's different for some of the other metalwork that we have coming out of the graves, where it's more identifiable as as secular metalwork. And, you know, there's various ways in that. How that could be acquired, it could be acquired through raiding, it could be acquired through through trade or exchange, uh, gifts, who knows, there are other interpretations there. But in the case of church metalwork, this isn't something that was was on the open market, you know. These uh, items were made specifically for churches, there weren't shops selling this kind of material, you know.
0: But lest you think that Vikings were all bad for Ireland, I'll let Griffin Murray leave you with one last thought.
2: There were no towns in Ireland in this period. So the church sites and the monasteries in particular were, I suppose, important sources of wealth uh, to be targeted by the Vikings. So, you know, that's, that's where the stuff is. That's, that's where the booty is. We're, we're going to go there because there were, there were no urban settlements in this period. And it wasn't actually until the 10th century that the Vikings themselves established towns in Ireland, such as Dublin and Cork and Waterford. And I suppose that's, that's a different story. That's the story of, of the Vikings as these amazing merchants and trade, tradesmen and, uh, and traders, you know. And that's, that's, a different, that's a different and very interesting period of, of the history of the Vikings in Ireland.
0: If you want to see the little reliquary that gave us this fascinating window on the past, you can visit it at the NTNU University Museum in Trondheim. You can also view it virtually through the museum's online collections. There are also links to the academic papers discussed in the podcast on our show notes page. I'm Nancy Baselchuk, and you've been listening to 63 Degrees North, an original podcast by the Norwegian University of Science and Technology sound design and editorial help from Historia Bruca. Thanks for listening.